بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم نحمده ونصلي على رسوله الكريم أما بعد we express our praise and gratitude to Allah Ta'ala and we seek blessings upon the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and so so we're still in ayah 7 of Surah Ali Imran we're looking at this ayah about the different types of ayahs so there are those ayahs that are muhkamat and there are those ayahs that are muhtashabihat and then the cliffhanger was on actually you know I'll let you see the screen So you all see the screen with Quran on it? Yeah. Where are we? So as for those who have in their hearts, and here the translation says perversity, and then what are some of the other translations here? Uh, doubt, and then this one is, yeah, so perversity over and over again. Uh, okay, that works. Uh, so they follow what is allegorical in it. Seeking fitna. So we get to talk about this classic word fitna today. And so seeking. And so is not just seeking. It's more like, you know, like almost like a very, very jealously seeking. Uh, okay. So, so now we get to talk about this phrase, which should, should make for some, some interesting observations. First and foremost, we have to talk about uh, this relationship between the heart and the mind in this paradigm. So turn off that, turn off this. And so those of you who are in the, uh, the, the, the latter class, the Al-Bakr class, apologies on, on the repetitions of these things. But all right, let me know you can see the whiteboard. Okay. So in terms of the construction of the human being, we have heart, we have mind, then we have body. Okay. And so the heart is the realm of your irada. The mind is the realm of your niya. And the body is the realm of your amal. So your yearning, your intention, your action. So the poor yearning of human existence. Any thoughts? What would that be if it is possible to have one core yearning? Yeah, awesome closeness to God? So essentially, it is a yearning to either call it closeness to God or return to God, but essentially it's a yearning for God. So this is the core, the core yearning. And so, so this is literally uh, at the heart of many Sufi tariqas that the whole essence of the Sufi way is to return to the source. So we are taught to say inna lillahi wa inna ilayhi raji'un when you lose something or when you're struggling through something. And so in this paradigm, that would be a statement of hope that we are from Allah and indeed to him is the return. So to think about this further, what are we saying? We have your heart, uh, your mind, and your body. So... this and then here's your heart it looks like it's suffering from some palpitations but that's okay so your heart we said is the place of your yearnings which then spark your intentions which lead to your actions Now, we often confuse yearning with intention. Yearning becomes an intention the moment you do any amount of planning, any amount of thought on how I'm going to fulfill this yearning. So if I'm sitting in bed and I'm thinking, hmm, you know, I would like to feed all the people in the world. Okay? And then I think to myself, oh, I get rewarded for an intention even if I can't do it. Okay, that's not an intention. 
it starts becoming intention when I'm actually going through a realistic plan on how to fulfill it. Good. Now, what happens, <clears throat> so here's your heart, and so we said yearning is here. What happens is that over the course of your life, you are being taught to live in particular ways, to understand life in particular ways. And if they're not actually in touch with reality, they are distracting you from reality. And a way to think about this is imagine you had a pair of, or no, not even a pair of glasses. Imagine that to look at anything, you had a transparent sheet of glass right in front of you as a filter. So that may not distort much. Now imagine a second sheet of glass is put in front of that uh, sheet of glass, and then a third, a fourth, a tenth. Now, now things are going to start getting distorted no matter how transparent that glass is. And that's what happens over the course of your life when you're being taught how to look at reality that your perception of reality is getting obscured. Now, what? so that's related to how your parents are raising you or how your family is raising you. But then on top of that, we have the choices that you make in your life. And some of those choices, most of those choices, if not almost all, inshallah, are upright choices but when you make choices that are not upright, that is further obscuring your perception. So imagine someone who lies. First time they lie, they realize it's wrong, it feels wrong, and then maybe they don't want to lie again. Second time they lie, the, the prick against their conscience isn't as strong. Fifth time they lie, it's become really easy. Now they're getting good at lying. 20th time they lie, they reach a point where they can't stop lying. Okay. To the point that they start evaluating and negotiating differently. The morality they don't realize has changed a bit. What else will affect this? We'll be on top of that. Suppose you experience some sort of traumatic experience, and I'm giving trauma here the most general definition. The idea being that reality hits you in such a way that it shocks you. And so naturally this could be a traumatic experience of abuse from someone else. It can be the experience of living in a hurricane but it could all be something, also be something potentially small, like you're crossing the street and someone honks a horn really hard and you realize, oh, you're almost about to get hit, which then means the next time you're going to cross the street, you're actually paying attention. So, and so that's a minor, minor, minor version of this bigger thing. And so that is also going to obscure your interaction with reality, which then means what? It's going to obscure how you interact with people. It's going to obscure how you interact with Allah. So if I draw this diagram a different way, here's me. And yeah, I saw you have a question. I'll get to you in a second, inshallah. Here's me. Here's Allah. When I'm born, born on fitrah, there's nothing between me and Allah. I may not have aql, I may not have an intellect to process. Okay, I'm not talking about present tense, although some people would disagree. But, you know, as a baby, uh, there is nothing. It's just purity. But then that same drawing, think of it this way, that, okay, there's the way I'm being raised, which may be obscuring my relationship with the law. There's the choices that I'm making, which may be further obscuring my relationship with the law. There's... Uh, traumatic experiences and what I do as defense mechanisms to pretend my, to protect myself from further trauma or to process trauma, so and so on. What's the end result? Is that it is obscuring 
if not blocking my relationship with Allah. But then on top of that, there can be those choices that I'm making without any compulsion that are just wrong choices. So if I'm lying without any need to lie, except maybe I just want to impress people, or maybe I'm applying for a job, even though financially I'm doing very well, but I'm applying for a higher paying job and I'm lying about it. And I know full well exactly what I'm doing. This realm we call disease of the heart. Which could be related to everything underneath or not necessarily. Okay. And so when we're talking about the idea of a diseased heart, So we're talking about this idea of this, this, uh, uh, when it's being translated as a perverted heart, the metaphor, one metaphor to think about of what we're speaking about here is that imagine you're at iftar. Okay. Some of you have not had iftar yet. I have not had iftar yet. And imagine, you know, right in front of you is a delicious plate of whatever your favorite food is which has to basically be either samosas or, or hummus, right? Because I mean, what else is there to eat in life? And so, and you have a tall glass of ice cold water on one side, you have a tall glass of ru'abza and milk on the other side, obviously I'm Desi, I'm saying these things, right? Okay, and, and it's just, for any normal human being, it's mouthwatering. And you have this right in front of you, but you are not looking at this plate, you're looking at someone else's plate, even though you have this right in front of you. This is what we're talking about here. So uh, all those of you who are younger in this room, especially those of you who are closer to age 20 than some of us are, uh, tell us, hey Mossab, tell us about the boyfriend meme. You know what I'm talking about? Explain it to us. Uh is it the one where the boyfriend looks back and he's holding his hand with the girlfriend? This one? Yeah. Yeah, explain explain this meme. It's basically, uh, uh, so like a, a girl passes by the boyfriend and then he looks back at her because he finds her attractive and then the girl he's with, she's like jealous or something. Yeah, exactly. I like how you're, you're acting like, I think this, this is what it means, but I'm too innocent to truly understand what this means, especially because my dad is on this call and my brother. But, um, but yeah, so this is the basic point. Here, I don't know if you can see my, if you all can see my arrow. So here we have, we have, well, we'll even assume that, you know, they're husband and wife, right? Because this is a Quran class, you know, and anyway, so yeah. So the point is that here he is with his, his woman, his partner, but then rather than focus on her, someone other, some other person walks down, walks by and he focuses on her. So if you understand that concept, then you understand what we were talking about here in terms of perversity in the heart. That there is guidance available, there is understanding available, but people don't want that, they want something else. Okay, so if you understand this introductory point, all right, awesome, your question. Um, all those uh, different colored lines or, or hearts you drew, are they analogous to the tests we face in life as individuals? So this would be analogous, not so much to the tests, but the residual response to tests. Okay. So let's say you have, uh, <clears throat> let's say you go through a very serious struggle in life. You know, you have someone who is super sick and, and you decide you're going to live your life differently. Yeah. So you don't go through that same struggle. But it is the choice you're making is not necessarily a healthy choice. Yeah. So the example I was giving is, you know, let's say you're about to cross the street. And you, let's say you're just on the phone about to cross the street. And, also, and it's not a car, it's a bus that almost hits you. And, and so you'll remember that the next time you cross the street. And 
you may internalize that moment so much that you keep checking uh, before you cross the street each time. But let's take it a step further. Suppose you're driving on the street and you get into a horrific car accident and it affects you so much that you don't go down that street anymore in the future. So it's not the test themselves, it's the residual effects uh, or behavior changes or differences we have in views of life. So what this could reflect, each of these could reflect is how much do we trust and distrust people because of, of betrayal in life, right? That I just don't even trust anybody anymore. So each layer reflects a different level of unhealth, a different type of unhealth. Make sense? Okay, any other questions about this? So here we have your, your irada, which motivates your niya, which causes your action. So what does this then mean? If I am of a condition of what we would spiritually call a healthy heart, it means that I've been removing these layers away. Which then means what? It means that I'm understanding the yearning that my heart has. The more of these layers that I have, the more I am misdiagnosing the yearning in my heart. So change the word yearning to unease. So all of us know this feeling of the unease in our hearts, whether we may pay attention to it or not, but then we diagnose it. And so I might diagnose this unease by saying that, okay, uh, I need to eat some food. And then, you know, so I eat some food, I get a dopamine rush, and then, you know, I feel as though that unease is gone. But then it comes back after a couple hours. Or I might misdiagnose this unease as a feeling of loneliness. Or I might misdiagnose this unease as a need to purchase something. So I'm calling this first self-diagnosis. Uh, Malah has an answer to your question. Good. Because we're doing this all the time. I mean, all the time we're diagnosing, what do I want? What do I need at any given moment? Even think of the idea of, uh, as many of you are probably familiar with the hadith, that the believer eats with one stomach, but the kafir eats with six stomachs. Yeah. Now, we would think that means, okay, believers are all thin and kafirs are all super, super fat, but that's not it. You know, when we think of the stomachs that are taking place, or let me take a step back. What parts of your body lie to you? What parts of your being don't necessarily tell the truth? Okay, eyes, mind, anyone else? A lot of people are saying eyes, interesting. So I would say it is the interpretation of what you see, yeah. But the big one that lies to you the most is your stomach. But your mind does lie to you. And if your heart is surrounded by all of these walls, it potentially lies to you too. Because even think of that Hadith narration where, we, where, uh, where we're taught, albik. Don't, don't see from a dog, see from your heart. And so, so uh, the assumption there, like take fatwa from your heart, the assumption there is that your heart is, is healthy. If your heart is corrupt, you definitely don't want to take fatwa from your heart. Yeah. Even if other people have given you fatwas as a part of it. So I don't know if we have to uh, discuss this, uh, all that much, but like, what are the ways that when we're speaking of your, your stomach, we have your real stomach. Then we have your hunger, like that feeling of hunger that many of us may have at this exact moment. You know, which leads me to just imagine the joy of drinking a tall, full glass of water. Anyway, okay, so then what else do we have? We have the hunger of your eyes. We have the hunger of conquest. This is when you're satisfied, but you still want to complete the whole plate. the hunger of the nuts and this is the the hunger that's saying okay feed me you had a delicious uh piece of chocolate cake 
have another. And then we have last but not least. We have any guesses? What else is missing here? All the different things that inform your appetite or all the different things that compel your appetite. So one theory is it's the hunger of competition. So taste is 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 a, is a good example that could fit into to any of these things, but essentially, it is the hunger of just basic yearning. Can I give more food analogies? So Basit, imagine like a Philly cheesesteak. Okay. So anyway, back to this. So what is the point that I'm making is that your heart. It's one thing for your heart to be covered in layers. When we're speaking of perversity in the heart, we're speaking of someone who always looks at the grass on the other side of the fence and does not appreciate the grass on this side of the fence. The person who does not, who, who already does not want to pay attention to what is before them and they're looking for something else. And that's essentially already self-explained here. So those people who have in their hearts this perversity okay so they are seeking the allegorical why because they're searching for explanation they're searching to cause discord and this court in these translations is what they're seeking to make trouble they're seeking dissension and then they're seeking to make mischief okay. but the point is what that i have the guidance that is front of me, and I don't want to listen to that. I want something else without even considering the guidance that is in front of me. Just like the case of the boyfriend meme, just like the case of the person with the delicious meal in front of them, and they're not even looking at their meal, they're looking at someone else's meal. And so that's what's taking place here. So let's talk about this word, fitsana. Discord. <clears throat> so when we're speaking about the the etymology of of the word fitsna, in its core, what is it referring to? It's that you are taking like a, a chunk of gold that has been found in a mine, and now you're putting it through intense heat to remove all the impurities. That's fitna. And so the point to understand here is that when you and I are being hit with fitna, the point is to remove impurities from our heart. Ideally, the point is to remove that which is conflicting with iman from our heart. But if our iman is weak, it may remove iman from our heart. Right? I'm sure we all probably have examples of people who who uh, went through intense struggle and that seemed to increase them in faith. And we probably also have examples of people who went through intense struggle and as a result, they left faith. And so, so this is the effect of fitna. In this context, the cause is again, someone who doesn't want the guidance that is given to them, they want something else. So they're reaching into the hazy rather than having the clear that's right in front of them. So this is also this is also a principle in terms of Islamic law that doubt cannot overcome certainty. The ambiguous cannot overcome the clear. And the, so likewise, this then becomes a principle of guidance that that which is hazy is not going to benefit you the way that which is clear. Okay, any thoughts, reflections, questions about any of that? So it probably wasn't as exciting as you all thought it would be. Yeah. So the next part of the ayah. Okay. So nobody knows the ta'wil, no one knows the explanation except for Allah. Here's a small point in terms of tafsir studies. There's a couple categories of what we call tafsir. So there's tafsir itself, and then beneath that is ta'wil, and then beneath that is bayan. 
Okay, so just in terms of orthodoxy, speaking about what is commentary of the Quran, Bayan is sort of even a step above what we're doing here. We're just doing basic reflection here, but Bayan is me giving you a lecture, you know, about with some references to Quran. And Tawil is essentially me giving you an explanation of ayahs of the Quran. And then Tafsir implicitly is I'm using some methodology of understanding the ayahs of the Quran. So that in a nutshell is the difference in terms of what we're speaking about, you know, Tafsir versus Tatwil versus Bayan. Yeah. What we're doing here is probably neither of the of the three, although a little bit of of how many I'm a little bit taking from one, a little bit doing two, a little bit doing three. The Dabur is another concept, not so much for explanation, but it's closer to what we're doing in terms of just reflection on um, the text, non-authoritative reflection. Okay, so here, no one knows the explanation of it or the interpretation of it except for Allah. And then notice there is a small, uh, a small uh, punctuation right here. In some readings of the Quran, no one knows the explanation of it except for Allah and those people who are firm in knowledge. See that? Do you see the point that we're making here? Let me let me write it out. Actually, you know, I just remember there's another one. The yearning here, a better thing in English, we'd probably call the nibble. This is the experience of. Yeah, I'll just have a taste. You know, I've already had my my full iftar. I'm full, but I'll have another. I'll have another pakora. I'll have another grape leaf thing. Okay. So nobody knows the interpretation. Except law those firm in knowledge no it's all from Allah okay so this is the the majority reading especially in uh, in terms of traditional thought but there's a minority reading that I'll use different punctuation Nobody knows the interpretation except for Allah, and then that to oh actually this is a so probably just made this a lot more confusing than it needs to be. Okay, so one reading, majority reading is nobody knows the interpretation of this except for Allah. Period. And those from in knowledge know that it's all from Allah, it's the truth, so far and so on. Minority reading is nobody knows the interpretation except Allah and those firm in knowledge. And then there is a, a period-ish here. Okay. What's the difference between these two readings? Or what are the consequences of the differences between these two readings? Late. Um, it's just a guess, but I feel like it limits what we can categorize as categorical versus potentially um, allegorical. Okay, explain further. Um, so if nobody knows the interpretation except Allah full stop, uh, and then those from knowledge, so on and so forth. So basically everyone except Allah uh, can never know the meaning of the allegorical verses. Okay. Uh, Whereas if we, if we take it as a comma or a continuation, then, then I guess uh, it maybe broadens the uh, um, number of verses or, uh, that can be included in, in uh, okay. being understandable. Okay. So the key point you're, you're making is that, okay, at the end of the day, only Allah knows. Yes? Uh, in which version? In the, the first version? Yes. Yeah. Okay. And your thoughts? The second version sets up uh, a group of elites who are apart from the rest of the Muslim population. Yes. 
at all. And so the second reading, the minority reading, then speaks of the possibility of a privileged class, people who have special access to knowledge. It could be by way of effort, or it could be that it's granted to them. But think about how significant that is. And so, so this is, a, I think, a really, really fascinating point about the, the different uh, punctuations that we have in the Quran. And by punctuations, what do I effectively mean when we're reciting the different pauses, the consequence of these pauses? But both of these are looked at as legitimate. The first one is, is, is more of the majority or the preferred uh, reading. All righty. <laughs> So now we're already at 5.30, let me see if we have time. Uh, okay, let's stop right here. Just a quick, quick, yes. quick, it's just fun how um, the verse that's about Muhkamat and Mutashabihat has an ambiguity in how it's supposed to be read. Yeah, yeah, I think that's, that's, a, that's a fantastic observation. Of all the ayahs that you would kind of hope would be completely clear and without without variance, it would be that one. But no. And and so so then so then, Dr. Mahan, how do you interpret this fact? Like, uh, uh, what other wisdom would you derive from the fact that we have, of all the ayahs in this ayah, we have this significant variation? It's a reflection. You know, I think that for me that just leans towards um capaciousness okay well how about uh, small words for for the rest of us like the the ability like um the quran is saying it is limitless it has many meanings mm -hmm. and uh it allows for people to be moved at different times in different places in different ways and it's saying that you know that's by purpose there's a purpose in that and let it be mm -hmm. and if you're trying to fix a meaning and exclude some others who are being moved in a different way perhaps resist that urge to fix it mm -hmm. let people be moved yeah that uh think yesterday when i spoke about these these you know the foundation of knowledge and i said okay we should start with there with that which is is Categorical focus more on things of existence like Allah and then building relationships from there. And then above that, we have categorical in terms of things that are usually instructions. And I said, that's where Madrasa Islam often begins or often teaches in terms of the masses. But then the third level was, was looking at the ambiguities. And I said, that's often where the unorthodox Sufis begin. But I also suggested that they're not wrong. And, and so, so when we have these different types of variations, uh, it adds for not just flexibility, but it adds for a wider experience in terms of our connection with Allah. And this is why you'll always, you'll, you'll very frequently hear me say, majority opinion, minority opinion, majority opinion, minority opinion, as opposed to here's what it means. Because there's outside of that first layer, most things are a matter of majority minority opinion. When people are using the term ijma, consensus, it's usually the consensus of a few people. Uh, Asim. So does that does that inherently then create multiple paths to like following the deen? I mean, that is in ayah in Surah Al-Ankabut, Surah 29, that those who struggle in our way, we will guide them subulana. We will guide them on our paths, plural. Now, does that mean automatically now we've just legitimized Sunni, Shia, Ibadi, etc.? Not necessarily. Does it mean we've we've legitimized, uh, you know, Hanafi, Maliki, Shafi? Not necessarily, but we have legitimized that there isn't necessarily one path. Well, and we're legitimizing the possibility of legitimizing all of those. Yes. Right. Yeah. Because we can use that argument. So related to Salman's point, the prophets were provided with that understanding. 
Who are those people? It could be the prophets, peace be upon him. Or we could use that as a, 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 a legitimation of scholars. Or in Shia tradition, we could use that as a, legitima a legitimation of the imams. You know, Allah knows best. But the point is that we do have these variations that often someone is seeking for things to be black and white, here's the answer. And again, in some aspects there are that first layer, all right, there is one God, there's a day of judgment coming, there's a final prophet, peace be upon him, so forth and so on. Yeah. But there's flexibility upon flexibility, not necessarily to be used as an excuse, but as possibilities on how to connect to Allah Ta'ala. Uh, Saadi, you're asking which ayah number is that? Um, are you speaking of the ayah that is referring from Surah Al-Ankabut? Or a different one? Uh, give me a moment, I'll have to find it, inshallah. Any other thoughts, reflections on what we've covered so far of this ayah? Okay, so so what is the, the, the key point for, for today? The key point for today is that it's almost sometimes a human reflex that the that the jewel that I have in front of me, I take for granted I want something else. And so this is akin to what we've been speaking about early on in terms of gratitude, that being grateful for what you have. And so here, taking the point further, that in terms of guidance, you start with that which is clear, even if you feel that it is not exciting or boring or not what you want. Um, uh -huh. um, so like, uh, the, uh, the ayah from Surah Ankabuth, uh, that you mentioned, yeah. um, is that an allegorical or, a, you know, categorical ayah? Oh, snap. Um, what would be the consequence if it's allegorical and what would be the consequence if it's, it's, uh, categorical? Because if it's categorical, then you've, you know, as we said earlier, you've like, you know, legitimized sort of, you know, a lot of different interpretations of different paths in terms mm -hmm. of the sex and maybe whatnot. If it's mm -hmm. allegorical, that may not be true. Okay. And, and in, in terms of our perspective on how others practice, it's subjectively up to, you know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, uh, 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 if it's allegorical. If it's categorical, then we sort of get into a the tricky debate here. Okay, so now if we, so now I, I appreciate both of the, like the, the, the different readings you've given. So now when we put Islam into practice, uh, is there any place in the world where you don't have multiple versions of Islam? Not even in Saudi Arabia. Every place in the world, especially if you go to a Muslim majority society, like if you go to a place like Karachi, right? You will have multiple versions of this thing that we call Islam. And it is possible that one of those versions is respected, is going to be accepted by Allah. It's possible that a couple will be. It's possible that all of them will be. It's possible that most. We won't know until we're on the other side. But at the very least, the, or the point I'm making is whether it's categorical or allegorical, in practice, there's going to be different readings of Islam. And, and so I'd almost, I'd suggest almost that uh, the categorical, allegorical difference becomes almost irrelevant. So, I mean, so like, where do we, you know, draw the line here? Because mm -hmm. there, there is, you know, you know, such a thing like as Bida, I mean, you can't just say, oh, you know, my version is I eat pork, you know? Um, so, so like, so like, where do we sort of draw that line in terms of the interpretation like of that ayah? Yeah. So we have a standard, you know, some sort of a standard, you know, cause you did say, for example, the prayer is one of the, uh, the miracles of this deen. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, for the, uh, 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 like most part of the, uh, the components that the prayer are the same like all over the world. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, so like, where do we make that distinction? So 
that uh, would be an example that there seems to be some things that are consistent that seem to be handed down through the generations. Is that legitimacy for them? Maybe, maybe not on its own, but I would still say yeah, the preservation of prayer is, is one of the open miracles. But the point becomes, <clears throat> at the end of the day, you'll have your understanding of Islam and a person two houses down, one house down, might have a fundamentally different understanding of what they call Islam. And maybe at best you can eat together, but you may not even be praying together. And so the point is that in each person's interpretation, there is also going to be boundaries. And so, so uh, in the search for that which is truth, you know, the, uh, in terms of mainstream Sunni and Shia traditions, where is the starting point? We're saying, okay, we take the text, prioritizing the external meaning, meaning the apparent meaning of the ayahs. Yeah. And that automatically will separate from many of the different sectarian groups. Is many of the sectarian groups will say, here's the ayahs, but here's the actual internal meaning. We call this the vahir and the batin. And so textbook uh, Sunni and Shia is we start with the vahir, right? And some would even argue that, that Sunnis even go further on the vahir meaning, but essentially, I mean, it's some difference of opinion on a couple ayahs, but the basic point being that <laughs> it's this methodology that gets formed, which we then call or this methodology that gets formed, which we call and so think of, of, I think it was yesterday or the day before we talked about the schools of interpretation. This is why the schools of interpretation are being formed. So you have consistency in opinion. So then you can also remove as much as you can arbitrariness and especially things that we consider to be deviancy. So you have this long history of, of a couple major traditions. And just because they're old, again, I'm not saying that that automatically means that they're, that they're correct. But you have this history of interpretation upon interpretation upon interpretation. And that's what these schools are. It's to answer the exact question that you're raising, which is, all right, how do we determine what is in, what is out? How do we determine what is uh, acceptable versus what is deviation? Because in practice, you're not going to have, you're not even going to be able to have something that is inclusive of everybody anyway, because those people will exclude you. But you see the point that I'm making? That fundamentally, the way that that question has been answered through time is by these schools, by the formation of these schools of interpretation. What do you think? Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, you know, uh, that makes a lot of sense. It's just, um, you know, nowadays, you know, in my experience, you know, we have people just struggling to hold on to faith. Mm -hmm. And, um, I, you know, I feel like these so-called allegorical ayahs, you know, they can be, you know, it can be very, you know, troublesome. I feel like in this society for those people just, you know, trying to hold on to faith. So I would say, I would say the idea of it is probably more troublesome than the actual reality of it. Right. Right. You know, okay. Like if I say, that all right we have multiple readings then many people start thinking okay well what does that mean does it mean everybody's okay that we're all wrong or that you know everything everything goes yeah sure as a philosophical idea but when you're actually putting it into practice trying to make sense of what is categorical part of what i mentioned yesterday was that you're using your just your your sensible intuition okay. does this sound clear to me or does this sound like allegory to me and and so when we are moving beyond the theoretical realm of what could be, what if this, what if that, but actually trying to live the practice of Islam, then more often than not, in most issues, you know, it winds up to two, three, four, ten opinions. Usually two, three opinions, four opinions on any question that you can think of. You know, when you put it into practice, meaning as a concept, when we're saying that you can have all this flexibility, then it sounds like you could have a million opinions, but in practice, it only winds up usually to a couple opinions. But I mean, can you think of any sect of Islam that claims that there's more than one God? 
you have sects of Islam that do claim, you know, that there are people after the prophet that are also prophets or messengers. And then you do have sects that do claim that there's no day of judgment. But even then, those are uh, often, uh, they're historically not just minority opinions, but usually they don't have very much scholarship as opposed to just claims of creed. So what we're speaking about in terms of the big schools, you have literally, you know, a thousand, thousand and a half years of scholarship testing, exploring the creeds. And so, again, the point being that when we put it into practice, then the variation seems to decrease quite a bit. Uh, Tasif. So, yeah, my question was that, um, well, more of a comment first is that to me, uh, I do wonder what you think that uh, ambiguity seems to be built in to uh, the Islamic sources, the Quran and uh, the message to some sort of extent in a, in a generalized uh, fashion. Of course, there's some things that are right, some things that are wrong. Um, but there was a comfort with that. There was a understanding. The with, the, with the ambiguity or comfort with the, the clarity? Oh, there was an idea that there was comfort with ambiguity yeah. that has been lost over the years, um, especially uh, you know, since so-called modernity or whatever, you know, past couple hundred years. And I was wondering what you think of that. And then also your heart, mind, body, is this a linear thing in terms of irada, niya, amal, or does this get mixed around sometimes in terms of? Uh, so in terms of the, the second the second question, and did you have more while I'm pulling up the whiteboard? That, that was it. Okay. Okay. So, so when we have, This, uh, the intentions I have will also affect my heart, my actions. In fact, I should make this even a thicker line. Um, my actions will especially affect my heart. And so, so, uh, I don't know if that's especially uh, uh, sort of what you're asking, but the idea here being that there is some amount of a circle in the sense that if I'm doing an action, an upright action, it's going to affect my heart positively. If I'm doing a corrupt action, it's going to affect my heart negatively. And so related to that, we have passages in the Quran, the Hadith literature, and as well as like the Sufi teachings that if you do something wrong and follow it up with a good, right? But I don't know if you're the starting point different. is not necessarily yearning or irada. It could be, oh. or is it? Is it, it is? If we get back um, to the basic point, it's. A, I'm. It could be a limit of of the diagram or my understanding, but I don't know where something would begin if it didn't begin with with some sort of irada. And I don't know if you have something in mind or or if you're. Just it just seems so close to intention, irada and niya. And differentiating to like yearning is it helps, um, but it also has a sense of will, in my understanding, and in, in, in other discussions and stuff. Mm -hmm. And so, just understanding the, the maybe differentiation and, and clarity between those two. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, so the way I was distinguishing niya from irada is it becomes uh, it becomes niya when you start trying to figure out what to do or how to do it. So, so think of that famous hadith of the two people who are sword fighting, the two believers who are, who, are, who are in a fight and one kills the other, but then they both go to hell. And then the companions ask, okay, we understand why the killer goes to hell, but why does the killed also go to hell? Because he had the intention to kill the first guy. And so we use that narration to get a sense of what is the difference between the desire and the intention. And so a way that it's understood is that the intention becomes the intention when there is some sort of processing in our language, processing or planning or thoughts on how to fulfill that. 
but yeah, I agree that the two seem very, very close. And and what we'll probably have to do a little bit later on is do more exercises to distinguish between how the heart operates and how the mind operates, and that might help a bit. I think uh, it was in this class we also did the yearning exercise, right? Uh, you know, think of something you really, really wish you could have. And and so that was I should what I should have mentioned that that was an exercise of trying to shift from our brain to our or I should say our brain, our mind to our heart. If that helps any. But yeah, I think that, I think you're. It's a it's a strong question, uh, Nate. Uh, so just two questions. So you said that uh, your heart, if diseased, lies to you. So how do you how do you begin to differentiate um, like Come a on. pure yearning that's rooted in a desire to return to Allah versus one that's kind of a perverse yearning? So an example, perhaps, of the dilemma you're talking about, which is a very common dilemma, is let's say you want to donate some money. And in that split second, you begin to wonder, okay, am I doing this to show off or am I doing this purely out of sincere intentions? And so that's the, that's literally what Shaitan wants you to do, right? Shaitan wants you to not only not make the donation, but to get stuck. And so what do you do in that moment? Like where you're, you're not sure, like you're literally in this moment, either on the street about to give someone some money you know, or you're at a fundraising dinner and you're about to donate some money, but now you're suddenly not sure, okay, am I doing this to show off or am I doing this, you know, you know, for reward from Allah or pure intention? What do you do in that moment? I guess the, the, the odd yeah. is to do it anyway, right? Say Bismillah and do it anyway. Right. And so what you do is when you have the doubt, the doubt, then you override it with something that is certain. And so you you very consciously make the intention Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Is is it's one thing to have the disease in the heart, but the doubt itself may be coming from from the heart, the nafs, or or the um, shaitan. Make sense? Yes. Yeah. And so that also becomes a type of treatment for the heart. That's why dhikr is is so repeated. That there's value for for adhkar, for for remembrance of, of Allah, just by saying it over and over again, almost like a self programming. But especially mm -hmm. if you're saying it with consciousness, it is a type of programming against your heart. You know, like you repeat things enough, it's like you start to believe it. You fake it till you make it. Mm -hmm. Any other questions about any of this? Okay, inshallah. Then tomorrow, uh, inshallah, we will complete the ayah finally. But you know, I, I guess it'll probably take about two or three days. And then we will move further. We have some more, uh, even more fun and fascinating ayahs to, to get to, inshallah. Alrighty. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika. Nashhadu la ilaha illa anta. Nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika. Nashhadu la ilaha illa anta. Nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk. Subhanakallahumma. Glory to you, O Allah. Wa bihamdika. Praise and gratitude are to you. Nashhadu wa la ilaha illa anta. We bear witness there is no God but you. Nastaghfiruka. We seek your forgiveness. When it will be like, and we turn to you. May Allah tell reward you all. And may Allah tell also reward Musab for his skill in acting so innocent and expressing that, that meme. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.